you would repeat after me, this is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I have what it says I have. I can do what it says I can do. Today I will be taught the word of God. I boldly confess. My mind is alert. My heart is receptive. And I will never be the same. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you turn with me to the book of Habakkuk, the Old Testament book of Habakkuk chapter 1, and we're going to read the first four verses, Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. If you are unfamiliar with the location of Habakkuk, then let me advise you to turn to your table of content. It certainly will give you a page number. And if you would, travel there, and we will be on the same page, at least in terms of the book. Amen. Habakkuk chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. If we're there, say amen. amen. If we're not there, say hold up. Okay, I'm waiting on you. And if you get there and a little dust comes up, that just means never read Habakkuk before. So. You're going to find Habakkuk to be quite an interesting prophet. More contemporary than you ever imagined. Habakkuk chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you won't hear me? I cry out to you, violence, yet you haven't done anything to save me. Why do you make me see iniquity, violence, danger? and cause me to look on the wickedness of men. Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contentions are all around me. I've even noticed the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous and justice comes out perverted. Amen. You may be seated. I have two favorite prophets in the Bible. The first is Jeremiah because of the nature of Jeremiah's calling and the manner in which his ministry played out. The second happens to be Habakkuk because Habakkuk and Jeremiah are two contemporary preachers who preached at the same time. In fact, to learn the content of what's in Habakkuk, you need only to turn and read through the book of Jeremiah. For they both not only ministered at the same time, but they ministered under the same conditions preaching under the same king, the evil king. Jehoiakim, who is leading Judah, who was a king who was really nothing more than a puppeteer for the sake of profit. He put prophets over people. In fact, Jeremiah and Habakkuk had to preach amidst false prophets, politicians and preachers, who upheld the idea that we're going to make Jerusalem great again. You'll catch that on the way home. <laughs> they also preached that they were going to both dismantle and disintegrate 
the idea of immigration that ran in Jerusalem. You'll catch that at home as well. They were false preachers who were advocating that Jehoiakim was the servant of God appointed to be over Judah by God. Much like, I see I got to break it down for you, much like the evangelical preachers of the day who contend that the president is the servant of God and has been anointed for such a time as this. It was destructive behavior by Jehoiakim who in Jeremiah 35, 36, and 37, he took the word of God from the prophet written on the scroll by Barak and he cut it up into pieces and burned it. He suggested to Jeremiah that his prophetic words, his following after Yahweh, was nothing more than another chink in the armor of Israel in terms of their religiosity. Jehoiakim says the Bible was an evil man. He was evil because prophet, how can I exploit the people right before their eyes and they won't even recognize that they're being exploited. In fact, they'll support what I'm doing because it appears that I'm righting the wrongs. When in reality, I'm actually stretching the truth and I am stretching what is wrong to stretch along the boundaries of those who don't have that they may continue to make available for those who do have. It's a political and even a religious objective of making sure that the haves always have and the have-nots never have. It's frightening to both Jeremiah, but particularly to Habakkuk, because Habakkuk is watching what is going on and he is also engaging in what you and I often engage in. In fact, Habakkuk's letter is so contemporary that he raises the question to me, how do we move from worry to worship? How do we handle this pathological effort called worrying? Because we engage in it from time to time. In fact, we may engage in it more often than we'd like to admit. We've probably all at some point wrestled with those famous phrases that seem to accompany what it means to worry. That person worries me to death. This situation worries my nerve. Every time I turn around, if it ain't one thing, it's... I worry about so-and-so. Something is always worrying me. We engage in the gymnastics of worrying. And I think what troubles us the most is that the word worry seems to mean that we're giving way to anxiety and some form of unease that we are allowing our mind to dwell on difficulties, troubles, and uncertainties without even having the worry to have an effect on the outcome of what we're worrying about. The word worry is interesting. It's an old English slash German word, which means, watch this, to strangle, to grab by the throat, and to tear out. That's how destructive worrying can be. And if you think about it, that's what it does. It jumps on our minds and it gets us to the point as this, if all, it almost holds us by the throat 
and keeps us as if we're gasping for air because we are always worrying about something and then it only gets deeper and by getting deeper, its stranglehold is tightening and as if it's trying to tear our very existence out all because I'm worrying about something that may never change. More importantly, I can't even change it. And we understand that it means to harass and to cause anxiety and to create an uneasy and an unhealthy state in our human existence. The thing about worry is, though, we generally only learn about worry in the negative sense. The Bible amazingly uses the word worry, here's a surprise to you, in both the negative and the positive. In the positive sense, there's a lot of words that the Bible uses uh, that's not just worry, but they are offshoots of the word worry. The words like anxiety and words like concern and words like care. In fact, some 22 different ways, at least in the New Testament, the word worry is actually used in a positive sense. So it's not just negativity that can come from worrying, but you actually can worry in the positive. It can be actually a good thing if you understand what the word worry actually means. So take your Bible and follow me. Let's first go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 25 as we listen to how Paul tells us that you can actually worry in a good way. He shares his overwhelming concern that the church, and there's another word, concern that the church stays whole and undivided, that it stays together and not separate it, and that it doesn't permit factions to create division in its body. In fact, Paul argues that it's important that we understand this entire body is one body that has many members, but it's all of the same body. Listen to what he says. First Corinthians chapter 12, let me begin in verse 22. He says, actually let me back up because of what he uses on the contrary. Let's back up to verse 17. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole was hearing, where would the, the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. And again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body, which seem to be weaker, are necessary. Now, I want to highlight that point only because Paul seems to be telling us that not only not only do all of us not have the same giftedness, but we all also, everybody can't be in the spotlight. But even those who are not in the spotlight, says Paul, that doesn't minimize those who are working in the background. In fact, Paul says, if you take away those who are working in the background, you can't have those who are in the spotlight. Because those who are generally in the spotlight really don't care much about doing the hard work. They may have the ideas, but they don't put their feet to the ground or their hands to the plow. It's those who like to work behind the scenes and who work tirelessly to get things done. And Paul is warning, don't minimize their efforts because they don't want front row seats to popularity. Instead, thank God for them and that they are a part of your body, your fellowship, in this context, your church, because without them, you wouldn't have what you have. 
So listen to what he says, verse 22. Uh, on the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary, 23. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor and our unseemly members come to have more abundant seamlessness. And here's what he's arguing. If you know who it is that cleans the church, when you see them, thank them. Thank them because you may think that their job is menial, but Paul says you should be grateful that you come to church and it's clean because somebody is cleaning it and what appears to be meaningless to you is actually a necessary job for your church to send a message to the visitor. Now we don't pay anything about cleanliness until there's uncleanliness present. Then we recognize who didn't clean this? Who didn't do that? We got to inform the trustees something needs to change. But wait a minute, when it was nice and clean, no one ever said thank you. No one said that we need to send a letter to the cleaning company to remind them thank you so much for doing a good job, but don't let this blow your mind. Keep doing what you're doing. We never thought to do that. And Paul says when you give them credit, you'll be surprised they will go beyond what you're presently asking for. You ever seen people, in fact, it may have happened to you. Persons come along and in a very small way, thank you. They say thank you. They give you a trinket that says thank you, something small, but yet they are recognizing your labor. And when it comes time to go to second mile, you volunteer to go to second mile because you appreciate the fact that someone has expressed appreciation for you. And as a result of that, you are willing to go, even when you're not told, you do it anyway because you appreciate the fact that somebody has recognized what you've done. And when we tell people, which is an awful expression, don't look for any thank you down here. Wait till you get to heaven. That's the worst advice you can give anybody. You know as well as I know that you want somebody to tell you, even if it's every now and then, you've done a good job. Thank you. Thank you for what you've done. To tell somebody to wait until you get to heaven, newsflash, I don't need you to tell me I've done a good job when I get to heaven. Because the king of kings would have already confirmed on me that I've done a tremendously great job based on his own criteria. But while I'm here, I do need you to say thank you and to recognize some appreciation. I'm just telling you what's in the text. Don't get mad at me. I'm just telling you what's right here in the text. Listen to what Paul said in verse 24. Whereas our seemingly members have no need of it, but God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to the member which lacked. And that's because some people who have a tremendous amount of self-confidence and a big ego, not in the bad sense, it's just that I know how to blow my own horn. I know how to celebrate my own success. And so if people say thank you, great. If not, I'm going to thank myself. I'm going to pat myself on the back and I'm going to give myself my own credit. That's not really arrogance. It can be used as arrogance, but that's not necessarily arrogant. That's a person who just got a lot of self-confidence and who has faith in what they produce and don't mind telling themselves, dog, I've done a good job. In fact, they're following after the pattern of God. Go back and read Genesis chapter 1. When God got finished creating, the Bible says he looked at everything and said, man, that is some kind of good, which means that God patted himself on the back and said, what I created is all good and there's nothing wrong with telling yourself I've done a good job in fact you have to encourage your own self sometimes when nobody else is there to encourage you it helps to reduce some of the worry that you experience in your life I'm just telling you what the Bible said there it is right there in the text right there in the text so Paul says in verse 25 that there should be no division in the body but that members should have here it is the same care and the word care there comes out of the word worry but not in the negative sense 
we should have the same concern for everybody in the body. There it is right there in the text. All right, flip over to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Here's Paul using the same word, same word, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28. Listen to what he says, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, next book to the right, verse chapter 12, verse 28. Uh, let's back up to, uh, to verse um, 24. Are we there? All right, here we go. Five times I received from Jews 39 lashings. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I've spent in the deep. I have been in frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. Man, you talk about being in trouble all the time. But he uses the word danger, which meant my life has always been on the line for the kingdom of God. 27, I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, which meant, says Paul, I've been without trying to preach and trying to bring the gospel to areas that's never heard it. Here it is, verse 28. Apart from such external things, that's stuff that happened to be on the outside, he says, let me tell you what I experience on the inside. There is the daily pressure upon me of concern, but the word is worrying for all the churches. But it's a good thing. I'm concerned I'm worrying about how the churches are progressing in my absence. I'm wondering if they're following through on the commands that I gave them, on the direction that I gave them. I'm wondering if they're doing what I told them to do because based on my own experience and the revelation of God, I know what they need to do to move forward. Are they trusting what I have said? Here's a deeper one. Flip further to your right to Philippians chapter 2. This will be our last text, Philippians chapter 2. And listen to how Paul uses it again. And we're going to look at verse 19 in chapter 2. He says, Philippians chapter 2, verse 19. Listen to what he says. We're talking about worrying, but worrying in a positive sense. We're going to find out this is actually what Habakkuk is doing. Worrying in a positive sense, by the use of the word concern, by the use of the word care, and by the use of the word anxiety. Look what Paul says, Philippians chapter 2, verse 19. But I hope in the Lord to, spend to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be, here's the word, concerned for your welfare, who will worry like I am, who will engage themselves to probe into your life like I do, who's always wondering how you are growing. So sometimes worrying is a good thing when you learn how to worry like right, when worry is connected to concern and caring about somebody else. Look what he said in verse 28. Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly in order that when you see him again, you may rejoice and look at it. I may be less concerned or less worrying about who you are. Worrying is not always bad if you know how to worry with concern. But... Jesus warns us about worrying in the negative. Take your Bible and flip back to Matthew chapter 6 because that's where Jesus says worrying can be a bad thing. In fact, Jesus contends that if you're worrying about stuff, 
it has a negative effect that will only do two things, divide and distract. It will divide your mind and then it will distract you from your goal and your objective, from your vision, from your perspective, from where you're trying to pursue because you're worrying now in the negative with the wrong kind of anxiety. Now listen to what Jesus says because Jesus kind of raises a couple questions for us in which he says, when you are worrying, uh, you got to think about where your loyalty lies. Is it in the kingdom of heaven or is it in the kingdom of the earth? Because you don't have to worry about kingdom business. But your worrying probably is more along the lines of the earth. And the problem with that is, says Jesus, is you've now centralized your worrying in a category that can't sustain you when life goes away. So listen to what he says. There's a conjunction in many of your translations in verse 25 that begins with either therefore or for this reason. Now he says that because verse 25 through 34, you can't understand until you grasp what he's saying in verse 19 through 24. You follow me? Okay, y'all look at me like I'm strange. Okay, watch this. Let's read 19 through 24. And it's important uh, because most of our negative worry is about earthly stuff that we generally not only can't change, but when we actually sit back and evaluate it, we don't need it anyway. All right, watch what the text says, verse 19, Matthew chapter 6. Don't lay up for yourself treasures upon the earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where the thieves don't break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be. So there's the understanding here that if you put all of your worry in what's here, you've got outside forces going to steal it anyway if you ain't careful. And if they don't steal it, the longevity of existence and the disintegration of what it is will happen anyway. Moth and rust will eventually destroy it. So you can put all your hope and worry if this car doesn't break down. I told you I spent $3,500, so I know how that feels. Worrying about a car. Why are you worrying? Because here it is. It's going to break down at some point in time. Worry about the house. The roof going to leak at some point. The hot water heater going to go out at some point in time. The air conditioning unit going to fall to pieces at some point. The refrigerator going to die at some Nothing lasts, says Jesus, forever. But put your worry, if you want to worry about something, put your worry in that which is eternal. But the thing is, even if you worry about eternal, you don't really have to worry about it because it lasts forever. So don't put your heart there because where your heart is, that's where your treasure lies. So look at verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart is. So now he shifts the focus about two things, light and darkness. This is important because when we get to the hub of Habakkuk, we're going to see how light and darkness plays into the equation. He says in verse 22, the lamp of the body is the eye. What you see. If therefore your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. So how I perceive life, how I perceive my trouble, how I perceive my challenge, how I look at that thing will determine if I walk in light or if I walk in darkness. Look at the text. But if your eye is bad, if there's something that is prohibiting your sight from seeing the light 
other than darkness, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? In other words, inadvertently, indirectly, Jesus says, be careful how you see life. Make sure you see life through the lenses of God which means that no matter how dark it is, there's light in there and you might have to persevere and you might have to fight and you might have to labor and you may have to pull back the clouds to see the light in the midst of the darkness, but it's there. And there's truth to that analogy. Do I see this glass half full or half empty because then that determines the direction and the perception that I'm going to utilize to move forward if it's half empty I'm probably going to move into a struggle mode how do I get it to get filled more but if it's half full I'm going to move into a survival mode how do I push forward and I'm going to push forward because I believe I got enough to sustain me even though the glass is only half full. Verse 21, 24. No one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will hold to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and something else. Then interjects the conjunction in verse 25. Therefore, or for this reason, I say to you, don't worry. Isn't that in your Bible? Don't worry about your life. That's the negative. Don't worry about your life as to what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you, what's for your body, as to what you shall put on. Is not life more than this stuff? It's hard to see differently because when you're a part of a capitalistic society that's materialized and that's consumed by consumption of that which is material, it's hard to see life other than what I can acquire. Is my car big enough? Is my house big enough? Is my bank account big enough? Is my retirement big enough? Everything is about life. Have I sent my child? Have I gone to the right school? Do I have the right job? Everything is about what I see externally. And Jesus says, that stuff is going to fade away. And then here's an alarm. Have you noticed that as you get older, you don't qualify for that stuff any longer? Uh, there's two terms for it. One's called a force out. You, you know how they force you early retirement. The other's called retirement, which means by they have a nice way of telling you, you know what, thank you for your service, but at your salary level, we can get three people to do what you're doing at a much cheaper rate. So Jesus is saying, don't put all your eggs in that basket. But here's another basket. He says, if you have a hard time refocusing, he says, look at verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, neither do they reap. They don't gather in the barns. And yet, they get fed every single day. Now, the analogy is, where's your trust? See, that's the analogy. Because the bird doesn't sow any seed, doesn't go out and get a job, doesn't punch a clock, doesn't get any money, doesn't have a mortgage, doesn't have a car note, doesn't have tuition, doesn't pay any bills, doesn't even have a house, can't claim this is my spot, this is where I live. The bird just fly from day to day freely just knowing that there's a worm somewhere that the Father has provided. And as they keep flying, 
Their sight enabled them to recognize, there it is right there. I knew God had a way of making a way out of no way. And they are so free that they're not bound by what's here on earth. And they got enough sense to know when the weather changes here, up, time to go south where it's a lot warmer and I can find a lot more provision. That's how God says Jesus really wants to care for you. But you got to put your trust in him and that's what's hard for us to do. That's when worry kicks in. That's when Jesus says we start worrying. Look at verse 27. He says in the end of verse 26, if God can feed those birds like that, are you not worth much more than the birds? So now he pushes you to go back to the psalmist who says that thou hast created me a little lower than the angels and crowned me with glory and with honor. He forces us to go back to Calvary. God loved you so much that he gave all he had at Calvary. Will he not give you all you need while you're here? And so he says in verse 27, which of you being anxious can add a single year to your lifespan that's a wake-up call for somebody this morning forget worrying why don't you substitute worrying and put worship in its space it's already both clinically known that if you smile and celebrate life more it will add extensions to your life but if you're always worrying and always sad and always got a frown you are actually detracting from your life that's why Jesus said you can either worry can divide you or detract you but if you put worship there you might as well go on bless the Lord at all times and recognize I may not be where I want to be I may not have all that I want to have but I thank God I got what I got because at least every day morning by morning new mercies I see and all that I need he keeps on providing for me I need a meal he makes it happen I need clothes he makes it happen I need shelter he makes it happen I need strength he makes it happen I need joy he makes it happen I need power he makes it happen I need victory he makes it happen let me put worship in the space of worrying here it is in the text he says in verse 28 he says and why are you worrying about clothes once again, paints a picture, look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They do not toil nor do they spin. They don't have no concern about whether or not they got the latest designer clothes on their back. Oh, y'all got quiet on me on that one. They don't have to have a, core, a Michael Kors bag or red bottom shoes or none of that. They, they, they just chill in the field they already know they look good without all of the designer accessories they, they already look good they just sit there and glow in their splendor that's what the text says look what it says they don't worry about that and yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory did not clothe himself like one of those do you understand what he just said? The richest man ever in the history of humanity couldn't even look as good in all of his attire as those lilies do in the field. That's some heavy stuff by Jesus. Even though all he's doing is painting a picture, he's trying to help us recognize what you get earthly and what you have materially has a lifespan. Don't spend your life trying to live up in that lifespan. You better recognize life is more than that. It's more than stuff. It's worship. But God... So array the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace. Will he not much more do for you, 
and you're struggling because you got little faith. That's what he says right there in verse 30. So verse 31, don't worry saying what I'm going to eat, what I'm going to drink, how I'm going to clothe myself. For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. Worldly, what Jesus is saying is all the people who don't know God has their priorities different. How do I know that? Read further. For your heavenly father knows that you have need of all that stuff. So Jesus is actually throwing us an undergirding lifeline by saying, I already know that you need life's existing stuff. I got it. I'm going to make sure you have it. But remember what he said earlier, you can't serve two masters. You can only have one. You're going to love one or despise the other. So now in verse 33, he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all that stuff will be given to you. All that stuff. And looking at all y'all and even myself, we got some stuff. And we know who gave us the stuff. Come on, this past Thursday, we sat down at the table. And right now, I bet you if I went to everybody's refrigerator, we got leftovers. So we had more than enough. And then Jesus is creating in us what Habakkuk is going to charge God with later. He's creating us this idea of sensitivity because remember, there is somebody who didn't have anything. And probably once we've had another couple of days, even though it's still more than enough, we're going to dispose of it because we're going to say, I'm tired of that. I want something else. But when you replace worrying, the negative way of Jesus said, with worship, you find some way to dispose of your abundance, but your disposal turns into a deliverance for somebody else. It's the provision that others don't have. So the book of Joshua calls them cities of refuge. We call them in modern vernacular shelters. It's where we go and provide where people need protection and yet they need provision. So what I'm trying to tell you is don't throw away stuff when there's people who need what we have and what we call excess. So Jesus says in verse 34, 33, if we seek that, all that stuff will be added. Therefore, don't be anxious or don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow have enough worries for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own, says Jesus. So Jesus raises a couple questions. Number one, where's your loyalty? Number two, to whom will you look for security, safety, and stability in this unstable world? And number three, what you going to do with that therefore? When you wrestle with what's in verse 19 for 24 and then 25. That's how I get to this mindset of Habakkuk. Because Habakkuk for me, raises the question, is his worrying constructive or is it destructive? And I want to contend that it's constructive because Habakkuk is inferring the question to us that all of us probably raise when we look at this world that we are a part of. And Habakkuk is asking the question to us, have you ever sat back and looked at your world, what you are a part of, what you see at its events and wonder what in the world is God doing? 
Have you ever been so perplexed, says Habakkuk, by the injustice, by the murders and by the sicknesses and by the host of other problems and ask yourself the question, where is God in the midst of this? And Habakkuk says, have you ever worried because of the societal chaos? Can we ever see a better day? And Habakkuk in these short three chapters says to us in modern vernacular, I feel you. I feel your perspective. I feel your pain. I feel your concern. I feel why you're worrying. Habakkuk is living and ministering in a declining city, in a declining climate, in a declining community. It was a time of injustice, a time of immorality, a time of violence. In fact, the reading of the daily newspaper was overshadowed by the crime and by the injustice and by the bad things happening to good people in the community. Drive-by shootings was a norm. Drug dealing, white-collar crime, even those in high places exploiting by changing or manipulating or working through the loopholes of the law to keep those in power to get richer and richer. In fact, the wealth gap kept widening and widening. And Habakkuk was watching how nation, his nation on the inside, was killing itself. And he's also watching while the enemy nations on the outside, like Russia and North Korea, were approaching from the outside. Y'all catch that on the way home as well. He, he noticed how the empire of Babylon was getting stronger and they were moving in. And he noticed how Jehoiakim was a part of the composition. Uh, here's just a little bit of tidbit. Let me tell you why this resonated with me as I was looking at the text in modern. You, do you not know that in order to have nuclear weapons, you need a, a critical a critical piece of material called uranium. And I bet you don't know who now has possession of most of the uranium in the world, Russia. Now, now you may think nothing of that, but that seems to be me, like Habakkuk said, I'm watching and I'm noticing that in my own country, the arrogance to think that you are the only one who got the power to fight, you somehow are not recognizing you don't have all the weaponry power nor technology anymore. Somebody else got that now and they're moving to make moves to let you know you ain't the only bully in town. That's why I said Habakkuk is more contemporary than we could ever imagine. He also noticed that Nebuchadnezzar was moving in terms of his own migration, how he was setting up small invasions, moving toward eventually taking Jerusalem, destroying it, and then taking the temple and destroying it. And it eventually happens in 586 BC. Habakkuk is looking out and he's raising a number of questions to God. Now the name Habakkuk means to embrace and to wrestle. And Habakkuk is, is embracing what he sees, but he's wrestling with the God of his salvation. And look at the text. In verse 2, he raises three indictments and then I'm going home. He says, first of all, God, when I look at what our outside world is, now watch this now because I got to warn you, Habakkuk's going to stretch your theology. He's going to push you to the limit. He's going to cause you to really have to ask some serious questions, not to change you, but to get you to wrestle. He says, Lord, first of all, let me tell you something. I think you are insensitive to my cry. There it is right there in verse 2. How long will I cry for help and you don't answer me. You see what we're going through. You see us praying. And you are absolutely saying nothing in reference to the situation. You seem to be insensitive that innocent people are dying. 
at the expense of others. And yet you're not saying nothing. We praying for a breakthrough, and we get up the next morning, the newspapers are worse than they were the night before. He says in verse 2, God, I think you are insensitive, but look at also in verse 2 and 3, God, I think you are indifferent. He says, Lord, you allow the violators to succeed in what they are doing. In fact, injustice permanently seems to be utilizing the innocent, and the innocent is suffering at the hands of the violators and when they go to court, it's those who are being violated that's convicted while those who are doing the violating are set free. Look at the text, verse 2. Not only do I cry out, but I cry out violence and you do nothing to save them. They are innocently being assaulted, hurt, robbed, and you know that we don't do well at making laws and applying them particularly for all in terms of equality and yet you let things roll on and we don't hear anything. He also charges God in verse 4, not only are you insensitive and you're indifferent, but Lord, you're inactive. You ain't doing nothing. Look at verse 4. Therefore, well, let's go back to verse 3. Why do you make me see iniquity? Cause me to look on wickedness. Destruction and violence is always before me. Strife exists and contention arises. In fact, you seem to be basking in the fact that violence is here and you're not lifting a finger to do anything. The book of Genesis raises the question through Abraham, shall not the judge of what is right do right? And yet, God, you ain't doing right. But you want my loyalty? Look at verse 4. You're inactive. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld for the wicked surround the righteous and justice comes out perverted. Lord, I thought when we made laws, laws were, were to protect and to serve. The courts were to enforce laws for everybody. But there's a loophole here and a loophole there and a loophole here. And the poor never get justice. The poor die in the streets because they can't have access to health care. The poor die from hypothermia in the winter because they can't find shelter. And we spend billions of dollars on stuff. Stuff that has nothing to do with national security, has nothing to do, in fact, if we just look at how we permit in our government the perpetuation of contracts advancements. Who gets what? Friends. I challenge any of you, go back and take a look at what happened to Haiti several years ago and who actually got rich on the equation. You'll be surprised to learn how the Clinton Foundation and those attached to the Clintons made billions of dollars on money that never got to Haiti but was promised. And the Haitians want to know where is justice? And Habakkuk says we're watching that kind of behavior and God, you ain't doing nothing. You're inactive on your throne. I'm going to close by saying this. You know God had a response. And verse 5 through 11, God said, no, you're incorrect. Look at what the text says. God says, look among the nations. Observe. Be astonished. Wonder. 
I'm going to stop right there because I don't have time to explain anymore for you because we got to go. But here's what God is saying. Listen, if I told you everything that I was doing and how I was doing it, it would blow your mind. In fact, it's not rational how I'm doing stuff. When you read verses 5 all the way down to 11, here's what God is saying. I'm going to use a nation who specialize in domestic violence and who knows how to terrorize people and who knows how to murder for hire and who knows how to genocide and who knows how to extract by way of economic exploitation, I'm going to use them to bring Israel into line that they'll come to recognize who their God really is. Habakkuk said, hold up. No, wait a minute. Hold up, God. Hold up. Wait, wait, hold up. How are you going to use an ungodly nation who have absolutely no idea about what righteousness is? In fact, God might be saying, I'm going to let 45 sit with 45 years right now so I can help some folk recognize that your salvation don't reside in 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, but it resides in some hands from whom all blessings flow. I'm going to let Congress sit right where it is, and I'm going to let you know no matter what laws they pass, I will supply all of your needs according to my riches and glory. I'm going to use ungodly people to mess around and bless you in ways that you would never imagine that's the craziest story about Habakkuk and what God is saying is what I need you to do is stop worrying about stuff you can't change stop worrying about stuff you don't have anything to do with and start worshiping your way through the dark days of life so here's what he says here's what he says he says, number one, uh, remember God is indeed sensitive. God knows exactly what's going on and God is going to make sure there's a fence all around you and no matter how much evil tries to invade, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. God doesn't turn a deaf ear. He hasn't turned a deaf ear to my prayer. God just simply says, I'm not going to give you the answer you want right now because I'm working all things together for the good. Secondly, God is active in our salvation. Check this out. No matter how crazy policies are enacted, no matter how crazy and irresponsible our government seems to be, Here's the basis of life. We still eating. We still got shelter. And here's the shouting point, and you still got a job. God knows about your salvation, but God says, I'm active in your salvation, but I want you to remember, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all that other stuff. It'll be added unto you. The other thing God is saying, for those of you who seem to have a very splendid community, I'm trying to teach you how you never prosper by being divided. But you got to learn to understand you've got to come together as a community that you may conquer together. That's a whole nother sermon. Something else for me to preach about. But maybe God's trying to tell us as a people, y'all need to stop fighting amongst yourselves and degrading yourselves and dehumanizing yourselves and insulting yourselves and support I'm almost done. Uh, several clergy across this past holiday encouraged African Americans, don't buy in non-African American communities for Thanksgiving. No, I'm sorry, for Black Friday. Find those who are in business who look like you and support them. I can't believe y'all got quiet. 
I know you're uncomfortable. You feel uncomfortable. Why? Asians support Asians. Hispanics support Hispanics. Italians support Italians. Whites supports whites. Why do we get quiet when I talk about blacks supporting blacks? Okay, so let me dig deeper. I, I done stuck you with the knife, I might as well turn it now. Um, I'm not just a priest. So a priest has a routine schedule. You know, they know what they're going to do every week. They know uh, how they're going to do this at the, 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 uh, the offerings. They know how they're going to do the sacrifices. They know what they're going to do in terms of temple. But I'm a prophet. A prophet don't ever know what he's going to do. Uh, that, that leads to say that sometimes when I get here, I don't know what I'm going to tell you. It comes out in the sermon. Because the prophet op operates off of the prophetic notion and inspiration that God gives out of the context of the text. And maybe God, I think, is telling Habakkuk, I'm doing stuff, I'm using strange people to force your people to understand the importance of remaining faithful to that which has brought them safe thus far. Now I got to go because it's 12 o'clock. I wish I had time to tell you. I wish I could explain my position more. People don't understand when I tell them I'm, I'm against integration. I think integration was the worst thing that happened to black folk. And they wonder why. Well, it's because if you just, just, just get a hold of the roots and travel back. Integration is great in the sense that it was meant to give equality. A, you don't have equality. It doesn't take a genius to recognize you don't have equality. You may look like you have equality on the surface, but underneath there's systemic racism that's alive and well that makes sure that you only have equality to a certain extent. I'm a supporter of segregation, separatism in the sense that when you stay together, you have to survive together and support together if you're going to survive. But when you integrate, you lose what you had that made you whole and you replace it with what you're trying to acquire. So we wanted to go to white schools. We wanted to have access to public accommodation. We wanted to go to hotels. I got that. But remember when you did that you now put your own at jeopardy so HBCUs are at jeopardy because our students don't want to go to HBCUs because they don't have the same accommodation or opportunity nor do they get the same notoriety recognition from corporate America like the high white schools in America so we sacrifice that what you ought to do is get a hold of those who graduated from HBCUs so they can tell you you need to go where your folk look like you so they can support you and help you through the trying times of getting through four years of college. Now we gave up. We gave up going to Rollo's Rib Shack to go to Outback. So now Rollo's Rib Shack ain't there no more. But we know at Outback, you ain't getting them good smoked ribs like Rollo's gave to us. But on top of that, you took your money and put it back in our community that it might be recycled through Rollo's Rib Shack. But nah, you want to give your money to Ruth Chris. Yeah, it's tight, but I'm right and I'm there now. I might as well go and, go and get it done. That's not racism or reverse racism. I find it interesting, it's considered reverse racism when it involves black people, but everybody else is supporting your culture. Am I mad? Yeah, I'm mad. I wish I could use the other word, but I know y'all don't like me to use the other word. And that's because the answer to our economic liberation is right before us. But we just, we've been blinded. In the language of my favorite civil rights activist, Malcolm X, we've been hoodwinked. Because we'd rather see integration as the progress, which in reality, if you look at the statistics right now, black folk are worse than they were 70 years ago in legalized segregation.
economically. We are worse. And then I'm back to Habakkuk. And we're praying to God, and there's no intervention. God, where you at? They're killing us. They're murdering us. We're not talking about medical apartheid where we can't get health care where other people do. We're not talking about the housing discrimination where they're not only redlined, but banks make sure they don't give loans in certain communities so that certain people don't get to reside there. Certain zip codes. We're not talking about how in locality school districts are redistricting. I can only speak of my own, Prince William County, where they're making sure that the blacks go to the black space and the Hispanics go to the Hispanic place and the whites go to the predominant white schools and the best schools. We're not even recognizing how the influx of immigration, it's amazing how the political climate wants to talk about it, how bad it is, and yet they continuously let it happen and they let